This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Working is supported by Delta Airlines, whose new Delta Studio provides all kinds of streaming entertainment in the sky, including movies and TV shows, all on your personal devices. Learn more at delta.com. Delta, keep climbing. Hello and welcome to Working, a podcast about what people do all day. I'm David Plotz. What's your name? What do you do? Hi, I'm Tom Tolles. I'm the editorial cartoonist at the Washington Post. What are you required to produce each week? Um, Actually, I'm required to produce five original editorial cartoons each week, but I do six. And why do I do six? Well, because uh, I I came to the Washington Post. They said, We'd like you to do five. I thought, well, I'm at the Washington Post. I should do six. So that's why I'm doing six. I do one Monday, one Tuesday, one Wednesday, one Thursday, and two on Friday. And I cover all the days except Saturday where they run a drawing board of other cartoonists' work. What time do you get in and what do you do first thing? Okay, this is another difference between me and almost every other cartoonist I've talked to, including my predecessor, Herblock, who was notorious for coming in late and staying all hours. All the cartoonists, or virtually all of them I talk to, tend to run that way. Slow to get into the office, taking their time, thinking about it. Um, Deadlines are made to be pushed. 
Um, and I'm sort of the inverse of that. I get up at around 5 in the morning. I'm in the office at 6 in the morning. And You're in the office at the Washington Post at 6 in the morning. Is there anybody else here? Uh, let's just say um, uh, there, it would be poor a poor venue to attempt a mass shooting episode here because it's pretty empty. Yes. But it's it's nice for me for a, for a variety of reasons. One, I like peace and quiet. That's not the main reason, though. I, I'm you know they say they're morning people and evening people, but actually there are really only two kinds of people: they're evening people and me. The number of people that are genuine morning people are so rare that I f- sometimes feel almost unique in that way. But anyway, I I wake up pretty much in terror. I found that terror. Creative terror is a pretty substantially effective motivator. The sooner I get started, I figure the more likely it is I'll be able to make the deadline. Although the funny thing there is I have such a terror of deadlines that I don't even know when mine is. I think it's like maybe 11 at night, something like that. But I've never gone past 3 in the afternoon. So I actually do not know when my deadline is. I've never come anywhere close to hitting it. So you get so at six o'clock you're here. What are you doing? I get in pretty, you know. Let's just say every day at six on the dot. It's not quite that, but I tend to be pretty darn regimented. I will read as much as I can as fast as I can for between six and seven thirty. At seven thirty on the dot, I will stop reading and start sketching. I will sketch from like seven thirty till nine. At 9, I write my blog from 9 to 9.30. Between 9.30 and 10, I decide which of the sketches that I've done will turn into tomorrow's cartoon. 10 o'clock, I go to the meeting. 11 o'clock, I ink my cartoon. And then the rest of the time, I go back to reading for the next day. I read somewhere, after I'd been doing this for years and years, that it's actually a good idea or a helpful or useful idea to... To re- if you're trying to do creative work, to regiment every single uh, variable that you can. And so then the number of distractions or differences from day to day is reduced to the bare minimum. Then you can really focus all your attention and all your energy on the creative process. So that's how I justify why I'm doing it. But it's actually just my proclivity. But anyway, so what am I reading? Uh, obviously start with the Washington Post, then I read the New York Times, and then I have a, a list of uh, websites and blogs that I look at. I read pretty much the same ones, but I will vary it from day to day depending on what, what, what the news is looking like. If something jumps out at me as either a huge news story, an interesting news story, an important news story, or a story that gets under my skin or I feel a strong reaction to or feel that I need to make a comment about, I make a running list of possible subject areas. So I've set myself up for a limited number of areas to, to focus on when I start sketching. And then I will do four sketches every day because it has to be the exact same number every day if you're a regimented person. So every day I do four sketches and I I work and if I've got three and there's just nothing left, I will figure out a way to make that fourth one just because it's the rule. When you sit down to sketch, where do you do it and what are your tools? 
Okay. Well, I have a drawing board here. We're in my office right now at the Washington Post. I have a drawing board, an angled drawing board, the way you think of a drawing board is looking. Yeah, it's really, can I just interrupt you, which is like, I like that you live the cliche. It's like, it really is. It looks like the office that the cartoonist would have. Yes, and it is. It's actually not my office, though. It's Herblock's office. It won't always be Herblock's office. I am just the current resident. But anyway, it's and it looks like a drawing board, and it's like uh, every day it's, I'm speaking of living the cliche, it's like, well, back to the drawing board. It's like over and over. I'm always coming back to the same place and the same blank sheet of paper. The sketching I do on newsprint, which is the the insider term for the type of yellowish cheap paper that they print newspapers on still in some quantities and it's i use that because uh quantities of it float around in newspaper buildings it's harder and harder to find it but anyway that's what all my predecessors always used and that's how i got started it actually and i use a nothing but a pencil but there's a special kind of another old newspaper item an ebony pencil it's a very dark soft pencil lead it's it's great on newsprint because it makes you can make a light line a dark line but even if you make quite a dark line you can eradicate it fairly successfully with an eraser because the process of sketching is often trial and error and trying different things and moving things around it's very simple very low tech very inexpensive but really does the job and it also actually scans well now when i finish the sketches i used to take the pile around and show it's another cartoonist tradition of showing people you work with the sketches you've done that day and getting some initial reaction now i do it i scan them all in and send them by email and can get uh, my reactions that way it's simpler but that that technology actually scans up quite nicely also Are you required to show your cartoon to anybody? Does anyone else have a veto power over your cartoon? Uh, That's an interesting question, and that varies, again, from uh, cartoonist to cartoonist. I do, of course, show my cartoons to my editor, Fred Hyatt, and we have a similar relationship to the one I had previously in Buffalo and the one that he also worked with, Herblock with. In other words, I will show him my cartoons. I am very interested in what he thinks about it. Virtually every subject I'm drawing on, he knows more than I do, and he's also got a pretty good eye for what works as a cartoon. So he's he's very high on my list of who I'm listening to closely as to his preferences. But the way the agreement works is that I will draw and finish the cartoon that I select that I think is the strongest one and that, that accurately reflects my strongly held views on whatever the subject is. And Fred has ultimate veto power in that he can choose not to run it, but the way it works is he can't ask me to either make changes that I don't want to make or to do a substitute cartoon. And it's the process has worked very smoothly. He's never rejected a cartoon that I uh, have submitted and said, this is the one I want to do. That's extraordinary. It's extraordinary in the sense that an editor not rejecting a submission from someone who's doing work for you, but it's it's not extraordinary if the understanding going in that both the editor and the cartoonist want the cartoonist to be presenting unfiltered, unvarnished, unmediated, real 
personal viewpoints, that's a value. And believe me, I worked under different systems. And when you when the cartoonist doesn't have that freedom, the the nature and content of the work starts changing and getting skewed. And even if you don't know that or can document that or a reader couldn't couldn't possibly know i just think it it feels different i think i think readers can sense over a time span is this really a person is this really a person a specific individual's worldview point of view passions and interests or is it more a committee product if he violently disagrees with the point of view you're taking in the cartoon does he say i think you're full of it tom but go ahead I have invited him to speak to me that way, maybe not quite in that language. I certainly am interested, especially when he thinks that the the fact base or the interpretation base or the analysis base is just off point, getting something substantially wrong. I would want to know that, but I think his opinion is that he's better off and I'm better off if he doesn't start monkeying me with with my head that way. And so he, even though I've asked for that kind of feedback, he gives me very little of it. He will tell me which cartoon he likes better than others, and over the course of days and months and years, I have developed a pretty clear sense of what his types of preferences are let's move back to the sketches so today is a is a particular day it's monday can you actually go to your sketches and get them here we have four sketches they're all in a in a rectangular box you just hand draw that or do you have a ruler that does it uh, if you look at them carefully yes they're hand drawn they're i just need to to roughly get the the topography of what the cartoon space is going to be Tell us about each of the, the the three rejected ones, if you don't mind, and then the one that you ended up using. Okay, well, I'll start. I'll start in the order I worked on them in. I knew that I was going to have to try something on a rack because it's just it's the story is is so big and chaotic. But I started with a note that I had made on Friday that while we don't know that Eric Cantor will be joining a lobbying firm, I thought jeepers, it's it's, let's just say it's a likelihood. So I started with something with Eric Cantor and a revolving door. But anyway, I'm not sure I, this is ready to run yet because it's making a very specific prediction. While this is a likely scenario to play out, I don't know. Every once in a while you're surprised. He might turn out to be a university president somewhere. Then there was a big study last week that America's polarizing um, even more than it has been. It's great to be able to use cultural references, but the the shared pool of cultural references now, my rule is we're down to the movie The Wizard of Oz is the only thing that everyone still is familiar with. So I did something at the scene of the scarecrow ripped apart where his head is over in one place, his legs are over at another. Then there was one, um, this is a a rare instance where I'm referencing another very famous cartoon, a New Yorker cartoon by Bob Mankoff, which I think is almost now as well-known as The Wizard of Oz. It's the cartoon where a guy is on the phone saying, uh, no, Thursday's out, how about never is never good for you? The 
endlessly non-arriving, robust economic recovery just reminded me of that. And so I've got Uncle Sam holding a a full recovery schedule and saying, no, 2014 is out. How about never is never good for you, which is how the the recovery is, is starting to look. Can I stop you? Um, So you have an Uncle Sam in this, and you had a um, get a Wizard of Oz in the other. What are the archetypes that you have to keep coming back to? And then are there ones that you just are like, oh God, do I have to do another Uncle Sam? Yeah, I mean, I say I do that every every day. I do Uncle Sam, which is way way too many days. Uncle Sam, there's one. Republican elephant, Democratic donkey. I'm going to those all the time, and I hate it. I think they're, it's a weak, lazy way to go. I think it's, uh, it's in a way, it just undercuts all the things I would love to be doing. And there are cartoonists who have probably higher standards and principles than I do who will not do, who won't go there. They will find a way to have ordinary people talking or the politicians involved representing themselves and come at it without the standard cliche figures. I'm of two minds on that. One, what I just said, I think it's a bad way to go on principle. On the other side, the window for attention in readers now, online in particular, I think is is getting shorter and shorter. I used to do very elaborate cartoons, multi-paneled, six panels, eight panels, 12 panels, where I would get into a lot of esoteric dialogue, discussion, very intricate little ways of approaching things sideways. And I just, you know, I keep. I always ask myself, how much time can I legitimately ask for for the size of the point that I'm making in the environment that we're we're working in now? I mean, I, I find myself recently thinking I've got to do. I mean, it's, traditionally, cartoonists, editorial cartoonists, have said you've got like three seconds, ten, five seconds, and You've got to catch them quickly, bing in out, or forget it. Well, I didn't start my career that way at all, quite the opposite. I thought, you know, people are just sick of that. I want to do something different. My ideas on these subjects are a little more elaborate than that, and I'm just going to follow what I think my strengths are and try to portray my point of view as it is. That hasn't changed like fundamentally, but functionally it has changed in that now I'm working faster again on a, on a simpler concept, a simpler delivery, just because right now that's a, a better match to what I think I'm trying to deliver in the medium and media that I'm working in. The Working Podcast is brought to you by Delta Airlines, whose new Delta Studio provides more streaming entertainment in the sky. Movies, shows, TV, all on your personal devices. Additionally, Delta's long-haul fleet not only has more flatbed seats, but more flatbed seats available with direct aisle access. Learn more at Delta.com. Delta, keep climbing. And now back to my interview. Okay, let's talk about the final one, the one that you ended up choosing. Okay, well, Iraq. I mean, it's just a disaster. I mean, in every possible way. And what do you do? It's not a subject that you can be funny about. 
it's complex and resistant to virtually any policy option. So what do you do? Um, well, there's a number of ways you can go. I mean, the, what I was working with today is I, when I'm stuck and thinking about things, I try to step back and say, okay, I'm going to try to ignore what everybody else is saying about it, some of the particulars of the events uh, that I'm not going to be able to solve. And, you know, I, I ask myself, what is it that I think that maybe is not what everybody is talking about? My understanding of Iraq just it's, it depends on when you start the clock. Uh, I like to go back to the pivot points in American policy involvement in Iraq. And the question that I keep coming back to is you look at the makeup of that country and you say, well, all right, our, our goal here is to make a functioning modern democracy. And my question has always been with the religious and ethnic divisions in that country, tell me how that works. So I, I went back to that. I also went back to a reference to the one of the original justifications for going into Iraq, the weapons of mass destruction, whether they were there. The the cartoon that I, I did is a kind of a combination of those, that they found the, the weapon of mass destruction, but it's not chemical and it's, it's religious intolerance. I mean, I could have thrown in an ethnic also with a, with a Kurdish part, but I simplified it down to religious intolerance. It doesn't, like, solve Iraq. It doesn't tell us what we should do now. But it's just a way to, you know, if you're reading only about the particular atrocities and looking at the map of where troops are and how many people are left in the U.S. Embassy, everything is very uh, short-focused. This is not the the 30,000-feet view of it, but it's sort of a mid-range, just a way, another way to think about what's going on that's just helpful in that it's I think it distills a portion of the of the subject and gives readers a little bit of a different approach, a way to think about it. And then at the bottom I said it was all in plain it was in plain sight all along, which is, you know, pretty plain, but it, we spent a lot of time and discussion in this country kind of trying to talk around that problem. And it keeps coming back, and that was that's the thrust of, of what I was trying to do in this cartoon. Does the line, I think we've located Iraq's weapon of mass destruction, and then there's the, the barrel of religious intolerance, steaming barrel of religious intolerance. But did that line come to you as you were reading? Does it come to you from thought? Does it come to you from, where, where do you think it came from? Okay, I knew we were going to get to this. I The only way I can answer that question is, and I don't, I don't know as I've ever called it this before, but I'll call it this now, is the evil Knievel explanation of political cartooning. I can spend that hour and a half reading, and it's very mechanical and explainable. And I can, I can tell you how, once the sketch is done, how I transform that into an inked-finished product, I can even tell you something about, like on the Iraq barrel thing, I, if you look at the sketch and you look at the finish, they're flipped. The barrel is on one side and the sketch, it's on the other side. I can explain to you why I arrange things and why I do things, specific things. But the the exact little, there's a gap that, that the 
evil Knievel has to go across on his jet-powered motorcycle. And that part's just a little bit hard to explain. Um, You can manage the the ramp up to a a political cartoon idea, and you can can manage and explain the the catching ramp and the finished product, but there's a mental thing, there's a, a zone of uncertainty that happens in the middle that's just a little bit hard to, well, I don't understand it myself. Connections get made that aren't standard connections. Have you ever tried to watch yourself constructing a cartoon? And if you do, are you unable to do it? Um, I, no, I, I'm very much un, unaware of my physical presence, location, anything while I'm working. I When it's going well, it's a process of blocking everything out, and it's, I don't even I'm, I have no awareness of my hands holding a pencil or sitting at a desk or anything. I'm just in the creative miasma and flow, and then, you know, there's obviously got to be some kind of management going on, but it's very intuitive and instinctive rather than conscious do you think if you worked let's say let's say every day three people came and sat on your couch and watched you as you were doing it you would be able to do your job uh probably but man would i hate to try i just i ask for very little in terms of support or extra little favors at work but there have been a couple of things one is i i need to have a door i can shut because i have to get into the place where there's no distraction where i can be just unconscious there a a conduit of ideas and creativity because it it doesn't take a lot to be thrown out of that place and I have to be in that place to do the work I do and it's possible I could train myself to just not see other people in the room but if I was thinking about them in any way nothing would happen there would just it would the process would simply stop how long did it take you to draw do you think the religious intolerance sketch today I mean, I don't. I certainly have one of the simpler visual drawing styles of cartoonists. There are cartoonists that have extremely elaborate, very highly worked visual representations, and you see their stuff on walls hung up in a gallery, and you think, "Wow, that's just beautiful stuff." For me, I you know I think about that from time to time because I look at my originals and I think, you know, that in terms of a piece of artwork. It's kind of like nothing. When I the few times I've done shows, I look at them on the walls and I think, well, th- they don't look good at all on walls. And but then I go back and say, well, why did I draw it that way? Because I can draw different ways. And my answer is because I'm not drawing them for walls in a gallery, and I'm not even drawing them for the history of all time art. I'm drawing them to serve a communications purpose in a very short time frame in a very particular media environment. I mean, it's two environments now, both on paper and online, although interestingly enough, I think they work more similarly for cartoons than I would have guessed. You you know, this is a very serious subject here, but it is, this is funny. Why is it important to live in a world where all things can, can be funny, if they're, even if they're very darkly funny? 
Well, the the if you look at the history of political cartooning, that has not always been the case. There was a revolution in American political cartooning around the middle of the 1960s when Pat Oliphant came to the Denver Post from somewhere in Australia, and he brought sort of a... I, would, I, I mean, he brought different elements. He brought some of the European tradition, and but he also consciously or unconsciously tapped into the humorous, uh, satirical, mad magazine approach to life. And political cartooning, just it, it just changed. It was a, a, a clear, distinct change in tone. And while I never thought Pat Oliphant is the cartoonist I wanted to be, he created a world that I felt very indirectly comfortable in and that it suited my personality i thought it was a overall a more effective tone to introduce more humor into the work i think humor i mean it doesn't it's not an original thought but humor is a is a great way to engage a reader to catch their interest to 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 make it make what you're doing compelling to them and appealing to them on a superficial level and then you hope also that that immediate superficial entertaining appeal gets translated and reinfused back into the point you're trying to make which is the main thing is the, what what are you saying once you've once you've seen the potential of humor as part of the process you just don't want it go back because it's just such an effective communications device and plus as i said it it fit my personality i've tried to create a very individualistic style but the world of humor and political cartooning was i that was part that i wanted to incorporate and i suppose also speaking of the digital age where you you now live half the time things that that are funny on the internet are more successful and things that are not funny almost without exception yeah i mean it's it's and it's not all a good thing because there's actually been this smallish debate within the tiny world of political cartooning whether the humor started humor tales started wagging the dog in a lot of political cartooning where you'd you'd see something it was you'd recognize the subject matter as topical subject matter and you'd recognize that a joke was being delivered but then you, on, as I said, the second look, you look and say, okay, well, what is the, what is this cartoon actually saying? And the answer is, well, it's not saying anything at all. And you can say, well, a certain amount of that is great. It helps build your readership. You know, you don't have to be serious, make a heavy-duty point every single day. But, you know, use it with some intelligence, please. With that in mind, what do you think a political cartoon can accomplish? I mean, that's a question I've asked myself every single day since I started. And even in the instances where people hold up cartoons or cartoonists, Thomas Nass, some of Herblex Nixon stuff, as having really achieved something, it's a tentative case at best. I look at it this way. It's part of a mix of discussion. And for me, the vastly more important part of understanding anything is reading a well-written, well-reported story or a well-argued case about it 
better in virtually every way. Cartoons are only useful and effective and helpful working off that base. Their strength and their weakness is their simplification of issues. It gets ever harder to tell yourself you're going to change the world with political cartooning because the environment of a monopoly position where the newspaper in a city is read by everyone, everybody's going to see your cartoon. It's just going to dominate the conversation in the way that newspapers and or network news did in the past. Well, that's over. Now you've got now you're in there fighting in the scrum, million different voices. Cartooning actually works amazingly well in the new environment because it is quick, it is humorous, but it's only as effective as both not just the presentation and not just the humor and not just the immediate appeal, but is it actually helping anybody understand anything? And how often are you right? Maybe sometimes you draw a cartoon that for some people it was the turning point in the way they thought about it, and that person or those people turned out to make the difference on the issue. I tend to think of it as just it's my best effort to help a an intelligent, engaged conversation about American and world policy that is not a chore to read but is – while humorous in in affect is serious in intent, and that's got to be worth something, and that's why it's worth my time to come in here and sit at the go back to the drawing board every day. Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. On the next show, I'm going to talk to Paul, who's a waiter at a fancy restaurant in Los Angeles, and really doesn't like his job. Hello, Felix Salmon here on Slate Money. We're talking about. The Economics of Marijuana, which is legal now in Oregon and Alaska and Washington, D.C. What does this mean for the price of pot? Search for Slate Money on iTunes or visit slate.com slash podcasts. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.